This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast here on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Thanks for joining me. This is episode 100. (sighs) What to say, what to say. What I really want to do is just thank everybody that has listened to the show, donated to the show, shown support, sent emails, downloaded the show, send us in voicemails. I really, really do appreciate it. Uh, I never thought this show would come you know, to 100 episodes. You know, it's quite an emotional time for me. Um, and I, what I really wanted to say is a lot of people have asked me, you know, and I've said this in the show before, how did the podcast come about? Now, I sort of haven't told the truth a little bit, so I wanted to say a few things today. Uh, I guess about how the podcast, you know, came, how it came about, why I wanted to get into the show. Uh, unfortunately, it's probably not a, g- a good story, but, uh, you know, probably in 2008, 2000, and early 2009, uh, we've all been there, I'm presuming. I went through a really pretty serious breakup. I had a long-term relationship with somebody. Uh, you know, I thought I was going to get married, maybe have some kids. Who knows? Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out. You know, five years, you know, down the drain, I had a house. You know, I had uh, everything there that I wanted. And unfortunately, it was taken away from me. My self-respect and dignity was taken away from me. Uh, I lost everything. I lost my home. Uh, I did walk away with some money, but that was a small consolation, I guess, to what I lost. So, <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> just don't <laughs> get a bit emotional right now, just thinking about it. Um, this podcast in 2011, after that period of the breakup, you know, it was just very difficult to, to, to move forward. It was very difficult in day-to-day life, you know, for a good 12 months, you know, thinking about it, thinking about what I'd lost. You know, trying to move forward with your life. And I know a lot of people have probably been in the same situation as me, you know, going through these really, really hard times. And, you know, I basically had, I had my job, but I had no real direction, you know, in my life. And, you know, I needed something to give me some, you know, basically some direction. And that's why I started this show. Uh, because, you know, those were some really hard times of my life. I needed something to focus on. I needed something to just you know take up my time take away my frustrations from what I'd been through take away my upset and worry and little did I know that you know a hundred episodes of a podcast would be born out of something you know where you know this podcast I mean you know basically you know really sort of saved my life you know um it's all I could it's all I can really say I don't want to get too emotional on that but you know this saved my life and you know, I just thank everyone. I can't believe that people think, you know, you know, give, giving me money for a podcast. I mean, I just think it's unbelievable that people think this is worth something. And um, I just really want to thank all the people that, uh, you know, donated, emailed, you know, sent me emails on Facebook. You guys are like family to me, you know, even though some people, you know, will never, will never even email me. They'll never send in a voicemail. They're listening uh, they're listening in the background and they've followed me. Some people have followed me uh, in the last 10 episodes. 
some since episode 50, and uh, some since the start. You know, there's a, a, a range of different listeners that, that we have. Uh, some are very involved and some aren't, which is also fantastic. I just want to thank you all. That's all I can really say. Um, I don't want to get too emotional, but, um, you know, I know some of you probably listening can even relate to what I'm going through and at or going through at that time, like five, six years ago now. And out of that, this podcast was born, you know, uh, it motivated me. It kept me going. It kept me, you know, I made new friends. It's just absolutely fantastic. You know, I don't know how long the podcast is going to go for. It could go for another hundred, could go for another 10. Uh, we've in 20, in March, 2016, you know, that will be five years of podcasting. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, that's a milestone. This is the only hunting, shooting and fishing podcast in Australia. You know, we try and tackle everything for everybody. You know, we tackle hunting, shooting, fishing for the politics guys. We tackle that too. We've had people on the show. We've had senators. You know, we've had Bridget McKenzie, David Lionhelm. We've had the guys from the Shooters and Fishers Party from, you know, two states, hopefully three soon once you listen to this show. Um, but, you know, it's just been fantastic. And I just really just want to thank you for all the support, all the people that wrote in congratulated me, thanked me, have been part of the show. You guys are the best, the Facebook family, you know, and this is what this industry is about, guys, family. You know, it's about family. It's about getting out in the bush, having fun, shooting, being safe, and in my opinion, that's what it's about. So I hope you enjoy episode 100. This is somewhat the best of Australian hunting podcast. Uh, There's some things that were funny, things that I just thought were completely ridiculous, which probably aren't the best of, but I think they really, really work in the best of AHP because, you know, some things were controversial, some things were funny, sometimes we laughed, you know. It was just fantastic. So, you know, I just want to thank you guys again. I really do appreciate all the support. It's just fantastic. So I guess, you know, without further ado, this is episode 100, the best of AHP. This is Rod Drew, CEO of Field and Game Australia. This is Rob Fickling from Beyond the Divide and Maroka 30. Hi, this is Col Allison, hunter, journalist for 42 years and a shooter. Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist. This is Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports Britain. Hey everybody, it's Tom Knapp and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Well, guys, before we get into the show, obviously I've got to introduce who the first guest is going to be. Uh, basically, this was a great show with Bridget McKenzie. Now, you probably remember Bridget McKenzie. She is the senator for Victoria for the National Party. And uh, I think, to be honest, it's probably one of the best shows I've done. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. Bridget had a lot to say. And the funniest and most interesting part was what she had to say about the Greens. Uh, I think it was, you just have to wait and listen to it. If you've listened to the show, you know what she's going to say about what she thinks about the intentions of the Greens in regards to their policies in regards to firearms ownership. This was just after the inquiry into the banning of semi-automatic handguns. Uh, So I want you to listen to Bridget McKenzie, and this is some of the best parts of the interview uh, with Bridget McKenzie. All right, Bridget, we're going to talk about um, getting into the inquiry now, which mm. is ooh, the crux of our conversation today, which I'm hopefully going to enjoy. You were part of the committee, sorry, committee for the inquiry on banning of semi-automatic handguns alongside David Leinhelm. Uh, how did you get involved in the Senate inquiry and why did you want to get involved? Uh, well, I chose to get involved uh, because I noticed Senator Wright's 
um, press releases at the time of setting up the inquiry where she she made the grand claim that most illegal guns were not trafficked into Australia but stolen from registered owners. And I guess as an as one of those registered owners, um, I thought it was important to stand up and again not let the Greens take the public conversation where they wanted to, which was going to end up demonising hunters and shooters. So it was important to actually be involved uh, and actually participate in that inquiry. And I think uh, at the end of the day, the findings of the inquiry were as we thought it would be, that the data isn't what we thought it would be, that it actually doesn't prove her contentions and indeed uh, she was ill-conceived to actually put it forward. Do you think the, the inquiry uh, from the Greens was set up in that, in that fact to, to generally target law-abiding firearms owners? Absolutely. If you look at the Greens website and download their policy on guns, I mean, I encourage your listeners to go there because if you had any doubts about their political intentions, you won't after you read that policy. And, and so whilst they mask it in, yes, the 3D manufacturing, yeah. and they mask it with illegal guns on our streets, the reality was it was all about banning semi-automatic pistols yep. as part of their policy. Um, and, you know, you can dress it up like you know however you like but the rest of us that are in that conversation need to make sure we stand up and and we did and we were inundated with uh submissions from uh, hunters from mm, shooters mm. from dealers from everyone right across the country saying hang on you don't get to do this to us uh, we're law-abiding citizens there's a lot of positive benefits to being a hunter and a shooter and and let me tell you what they are and uh, you know, I thought it ended up being quite a positive experience. Yeah, I don't think they got many. I mean, obviously, a lot of us on Facebook put the call out there to get uh, uh, submissions in, and I don't even think there was, I don't know, maybe you might be able to tell me how many anti-sort of submissions there were. I, I read a, quite a few of them, and they were all, every time I opened one, it was pro, pro. The, it was fantastic. It was fantastic, you know, and I think um, that just showed the Greens, just how out of touch they are with mainstream Australia. I mean, <laughs> 760,000 people can't be wrong, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, that's a lot more that live in, in an urban... Unless you live in inner city Detroit. Melbourne, uh, exactly. yeah, yeah, where Adam Bantz are elected, then you might say something <laughs> exactly. completely different. But <laughs> um, Exactly. So, uh, you know, again, I just thought it was a really positive experience. And, and then we had the opportunity during the hearings to hear um, from a lot of those groups and individuals, but also from the law enforcement agencies, which uh, their evidence was quite interesting mm. too, I think. I know. In, in uh, the Victorian police stated at the Senate inquiry, I think it was, that uh, all the information you had was that six firearms, was, or obviously handguns, were stolen out of 48,000 in Victoria from registered <laughs> users. Now, the very interesting part, I've actually got this on my YouTube page, this video, and it's had quite a few views, but you questioned the Institute of Criminology uh, mm -hmm. Where you originally said, I think, obviously as a rough figure, it was 0.6% or 0.06, I'm not sure. Then the fellow actually came back and said, no, it was 0 either 0.1 or 0.1% of those <laughs> firearms that were stolen. And they didn't do any data re or research based on illegal firearms coming into the country. I mean, there seems to be a major uh, issue with the data they had or what the terms of what they were trying to push during that uh, inquiry. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, Jason. I mean, at the end of the day, we all need to back evidence-based policy, right? Yep. So if your data is skewed, if your data is incorrect, um, then you need to question your policy basis. Uh, 
which is exactly what we were able to do. I think we were able to highlight um, that that Australian Institute of Criminology's data was absolutely useless, if, for want of a better word. <laughs> yep. Uh, and as such, if it's useless, then you actually can't use it to make assumptions and policy decisions around. Um, and, and that, I think, uh, was even accepted by Penny Wright in the end. So, so overwhelming was it <laughs> in, in evidence. I think the Victoria Police also raised some really other interesting aspects about the illegal importation of firearms. And they noted that internet-facilitated firearm traffic trafficking is an emerging trend and, and like you were saying it's not from law-abiding firearm owners that these uh, firearms that are causing issue on our streets uh, are not coming from us, they're coming from overseas, whether they're the Glocks that are mailed into Australia, yep. um, whether people are using the internet similar to how drug, drug pushers use Silk Road um, to actually come about and get their, their illegal um, firearm, it's not through uh, legal legal owners and I think we made that really really clear and I even heard the drum I don't know if you caught up with the drum that Friday night ABC and all that but even Jack the blogger on the drum was actually saying well the data's all wrong and yeah. most of the illegal firearms come in from overseas which is exactly the case and to actually have that reiterated so publicly I think was a real success of the inquiry. Yeah but you were definitely I wanted to congratulate you on that you were definitely on song when you were asking those questions I mean I actually felt bad for them because when you're asking those questions, <laughs> you were like, mm, okay, and I was like, oh, this is just embarrassing. But speaking about that, obviously six handguns, to me that's too much, but if I'm yeah. looking at it as a grand scale here, I mean, it doesn't, Obviously, we want people so their firearms aren't being stolen. That's a given. Mm -hmm. We all understand that. But six, when we have, as you said before, I mean, that was up near my area, about an hour away from me, uh, 220 handguns. These are the only ones they found, mind you. And yeah, the, exactly. And the Institute of Criminology did not do any data around the illicit importation of firearms, which is huge. I mean, 200, that's the ones we know about. What about the ones we don't mm. know about? Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, even the law enforcement office, uh, officers were very clear in, you know, well, we don't know what we don't know. I, I think you make a really good point, Jason, about the six. Uh, absolutely right. Six is too many. We wouldn't want any of those being used um, in illegal activities by organised crime syndicates, etc. Yep. But you've got to look at this as a government. You've got to look at this as a by looking at risk. So I've yep. got X number of resources. Where's the greatest risk? That's where I need to focus my resources. Exactly, on. yep. Um, and, you know, putting more regulation on the 48,000 handguns in Victoria that aren't getting stolen rather than actually focusing on, like you said, um, Customs, Australia Post, etc., uh, the internet, monitoring those areas and ensuring we're getting a greater capture of those illegal guns coming in is a much better use of resources and will ultimately end up on a safer street. Next up on the best of AHP, episode 100, is National President of the Sporting Shooters Association's Jeff Jones. Now, this is a very interesting one. I mean, Jeff's a great guy. Uh, 
I haven't dealt with him too much, obviously, just during this interview process. I do read the National Magazine, which sometimes I'm not a big fan of. I think that they need to be more political. And uh, Jeff basically said that uh, something about the NRA, which I want you to listen to, so if you haven't listened to it, uh, it was certainly very, very interesting. I thought the statement uh, is was basically ridiculous. Uh, I don't know why you would say stuff like this, uh, because... Most people, a lot of people are happy with the double S double A, and a lot of people aren't happy with the double S double A for various reasons. Whether they think they're apathetic, they're not doing enough for their sport, or they're not doing enough in politics. So I'm going to let you listen to what Jeff Jones, the national president of the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia, uh, had to say about the National Rifle Association. Here it is. Yeah, okay. I just want to go through a couple more things. I think these are, uh, again, I get a lot of emails from people saying a lot of different things, wanting to know questions. So we obviously, great, we just tackled registration. What about um, the onerous restrictions on licensed categories? I mean, and this actually goes back into uh, self-defense, actually, not being a genuine reason to own a firearm. I know a lot of people, especially myself, very passionate about self-defense. Yes, I hope no one ever breaks into my home and it never happens to me, but... Jeff, we're seeing it every day. Just happened down here in Sydney. A lady in Westmead, you know, walking through the park um, on her phone to her husband, uh, basically uh, attacked, murdered, killed. Uh, no form of self-defence allowed uh, for a genuine reason to firearm. Whether this is in the home or outside the home, does the double SAA support licence categories and also the genuine reason, or, or would they accept the genuine reason of self-defence if it presented itself? Okay, the, the self-defence issue is, is something that individually, um, we, you know, we all have our opinions on, and I'm not necessarily against that. Don't get me wrong. I don't know that I'd actually want to see a society um, that's that's, uh, that's uh, totally armed for a whole pile of reasons. I think we've got enough trouble in Western Sydney now where it's illegal, um, and the, there's trouble there uh, as well. But um, by the same token, SSAA's charter within its constitution does not and, and hasn't ever been involved in covered self-defence as opposed to, say, the NRA in, in America, yep. where, where it's actually really quite different. Now, that is part of our charter. Double uh, sorry, self-defence is, is not um, listed or mentioned as a sporting organisation. It, it is not, not part of what we do. Therefore, it's not that we're against it or for it or anything anywhere in between. It's simply not part of what SSAA was, was founded and structured and continues to do. Now, as I say, if in, even in America people talk about the NRA, but there are uh, um, quite a number of, of really quite influential and powerful organisations in America, as well as the NRA, who are actually... People say, oh, the NRA does this, the NRA does that. Well, actually, no, they don't. SSAA, pound for pound is more effective and kicks more goals than the NRA does. Um, I know that a lot of people That's would like to That's a big statement, that. Jeff. That's a very big statement. It is a big statement. statement. <laughs> it is a big statement. Very big um, statement. But it, that, that, it, it is indeed. But uh, per capita, um, per capita, we, um, we have more members than, than the NRA. We, um, we do what we do um, with less staff than the NRA. Um, and I, I, I know the NRA guys, I deal with them. I've just come, returned from uh, from Germany with um, past President Bob Green, who is our international representative yep. from a World Forum meeting where we, we meet with the NRA, the National Sports Shooting Foundation, um, the Second Amendment Foundation. That's from America. Don't worry about the Europeans. The Europeans yeah. Are, yeah. Are, are, are bigger in that, um, in that um, arena than the Americans. But um, as I say, pound for pound, and remembering that they have the Second Amendment in America. Yep. Now, 
considering they have the Second Amendment, which is what they hang their hat on, and we speak with them on a regular basis, without that Second Amendment, they would be in all sorts of strife. Absolutely. Um, yep. So considering the fact that's right, and and um, we're not we're not suggesting that we're um, uh, you know we're we're on top of everything, but considering the fact we have no um, legislated rights here. We've done, I don't mean double time, I mean shooters generally have done yep. pretty darn well, um, but it doesn't mean that um, um, we're, we're um, home and hose, far from it, because the, those that, the, that are out there who would take our firearms off us are still alive and well and just waiting in the shadows, we all know that. So that's something we have to keep, keep uh, on to, but unfortunately... We can't take the same line as the NRA because they fall straight back to their Second Amendment. We don't have that to fall back to. We, we have to pursue um, similar but alternative strategies. The direction's the same, and that's what we've, just, we, we've got to actually work, unfortunately, much, much harder at trying to achieve the same result. Um, uh, as I say, um, self-defence. I'm, I'm not against self-defence, um, and I know that the legislators have worked around that and tried to make it as difficult as possible when you're involved with firearms. But even with firearms, there's, there's the option of, uh, or the opportunity for equal and opposite force. Um, so, as I say, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a moot point, to be quite frank. Yep. It's, um, I, I really wouldn't want to be in a position myself where uh, I was having to defend myself in a court of law suggesting that I'd used equal and opposite force uh, yep. with a firearm under, the, under Australian legislation. Yep. But um, you know, we, we are living in something of a nanny state and it seems to be getting worse by the day. Um, uh, so I don't know how we change that. Not, not just related to firearms, but anybody involved yeah. in you know, occupational health and safety and all the rest of it will be well aware of that. It's a, this is actually part of a much bigger picture, which makes it difficult for all of us. So, yeah. uh, As I say, I, I'm, that's not meant to be a cop-out. We're talking about no. self-defence. I'm not trying to cop-out. I'm just saying that's the situation as we find it. Um, the the self-defence issue may be an issue for another organisation to take forward. Uh, I'm not sure. WSAA would would simply, under its current structure, would not have a would not have a particular position on it. We would not oppose it. We would not support it. It's just not not what yeah. we what we're about. So. Even non-lethal forms of self-defence, Jeff, as you know, I mean tasers, yep. uh, uh, pepper spray, which you know in sure. WA you actually can uh, carry the pepper spray. Uh, there was Correct. a case just recently, uh, I think about three to six months ago, about that as well. The lady that was carrying pepper spray, but someone actually sent me a photo the other day, and it says we allow our primary producers. Uh, to defend their livestock with firearms, but not our own human life. And I sort of thought about that for about 20 minutes, and I thought, very good point. We, we allow our primary producers, which is great, mind you, 100% support our primary producers, our agricultural farmers. Um, but we can, and this comes back to the self-defense part again, I know we just spoke about it, but we can defend uh, our livestock, but we can't defend our lives. Don't, we, don't you think that's a bit silly? Oh, yes, yes, of course. But one of those things on that uh, the point the the point that they can defend their livestock are they defending it against um, uh, other humans or are they defending it against predatory animals? Um, you know, in all fairness, I've, I've, don't get me wrong. I just don't want to be put in that position if I have to argue that with a legislator. I've got no problem discussing that with yourself. But a legislator will come straight back to me and say, "Hang on, hang on." Exactly as I said, you know, you, 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 we're, we're talking, um, you know, um, oranges and apples here. But by the same token. I do agree, and I'll tell you quite frank, I think it's absolutely disgraceful that uh, women um, are put in a position in, in Australia where they are unable to defend themselves, and I'm not necessarily talking about firearms, but by any means they can.
can't carry, you know, pepper spray, spray or mace or whatever it might be. Certainly mm. in uh, some of the uh, the urban areas of the larger cities, um, and there is, you know, there's sufficient ongoing uh, assaults and attacks that, that happen. Um, and again, it's it's for another arena. It's another probably for another debate. But oh, personally, I, I think that's disgraceful. You know, taking away that that opportunity. We're just going to go to a quick break here on AHP Digital and we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. For everything Bushnell, go to Red Fox Outdoor Supplies online store. For a full range of Bushnell rifle scopes, rangefinders, binoculars, night vision, spotting scopes and hobbies gun cleaning products. Visit redfoxoutdoorsupplies.com.au or call Greg on 0415 495 712. Red Fox Outdoor Supplies, the only real choice for Bushnell hunting equipment. Liberal Democrat Senator David Lionhelm is a committed shooter fighting for your rights. He forced government ministers to start regular talks with shooting groups on gun laws and in just one year has saved shooters from eviction from the Malabar Rifle Range in Sydney. David also secured $3 million in funding for range improvements. Visit ldp.org.au and vote one, the Liberal Democrats. Next up on the Best of AHP, episode 100, is Dennis Corrin from the New South Wales Firearms Registry. Uh, this was recorded back in 2014 at the SSAA Shot Expo in Sydney. Uh, we got Dennis from the Firearms Registry to come on uh, audio to chat to us, and it was almost like good cop, a bad cop between me and Mario. Uh, because I was trying to be nice and try and keep the interview going, whereas Mario was sort of really asking the hard questions, which I think was fantastic. Uh, and I'm not sure really Dennis really had the the answers to what we were asking about, you know, what their, you know, what 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 the regulatory process is in regards to what they do. He wasn't very good at explaining it, uh, and he also couldn't really answer and gave us pretty much fluff questions or fluff answers, I should say, uh, in regards to the questions that we asked. So here is Dennis Corrin from the New South Wales Firearms Registry. All right, I've got Dennis with me here, Dennis Corrin from the New South Wales Firearms Registry. How are you doing, Dennis? I'm very good. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Tell us about some of the uh, functions that the uh, New, South Wa- New South Wales Firearms Registry perform. Oh, well, we certainly we um, license people for, um, for firearms, register firearms, and other are our core core business responsibilities. Mm. Absolutely. Um, that includes registration of firearms? Registration of firearms, yes. <laughs> Uh, Dennis, I've just got uh, one of these little um, uh, armbands saying "keeping me safe," and uh, I just want to, for you, just in your own words, explain to the people out there how does the firearm registry keep us safe? Well, um, we uh, help coordinate the safe storage um, regime of the uh, uh, firearms. We do a lot of promotion work um, with uh, here today the SSAA running the course. We'll go in afterwards and let them know what happens next and the obligations of um, license holders and you know storing their firearms safely those sorts of things mm-hmm. how important do you think is to say like safe storage like do you think these sort of things are, are important oh very yeah absolutely they're a, a, a very um, major part of the legislation in terms of um, owning and uh, possessing firearms. <laughs> Do you find there's a good relationship, say, between you know, uh, I mean, shooters, shooting groups with the registry? Do you find it's growing and building, or what are you sort of finding in your day-to-day duties? Oh, I believe um, you know we are um, getting a lot better with uh, with that side. 
Um, we're having regular stakeholder meetings now with um, the various clubs and associations, the dealer associations, you know, to discuss the various issues that they have, that we may have, and, and to have some sort of consultative approach to some of the problems that may exist. Um, and so, yeah, that's all, all very good. Dennis, a lot of our uh, listeners have emailed us and they were saying that they're not really happy about the fact that all their information is stored at a central database and they're not really happy about the fact that police come into their home and so-called uh, violate their privacy and to check up on their firearms. What do you have to say about that? Well, I think um, licence holders and gun owners have to accept that that is uh, uh, one of the major responsibilities and 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 provisions of the Act, that um, you know they have to store these things safely and it has to be monitored. Um, people do to be compliant. No, certainly don't want firearms getting into the wrong people's hands. Um, most licence holders are, you know, uh, are responsible shooters and, you know, they take um, care. It's only those that um, maybe shouldn't be having guns that probably would be complaining to ensure that, you know, they, they want to keep them safe. How can we um, ensure to the uh, licence holders out there that the information is 100% uh, I guess what would you say Mario? I guess you say uh, Well I guess uh, you know it's hang not on, hang on, no, to make sure it's, it's sort of hang on, yeah, to make sure it's not compromised I know there was a conjecture last year the year before uh, people were saying that the information was downloaded to a central server that police had access to it I have heard things where you know police volunteers are ringing up uh, licensed firearms owners for inspections how can we make sure, I guess, on a positive note, that the information, you know, the punters sort of feel and the, and the licence holders feel that information is secure because obviously it would be pretty counterproductive for the information to go elsewhere. We don't want that. You guys don't want that. It serves everyone's purpose, really, to make sure that doesn't happen. Look, any information as to where guns are stored are only available to New South Wales Police. So um, in terms of the security of that information... When these um, uh, uh, claims come out, an audit was conducted and it was shown that, that the information is secure. Um, there's no way that can get into the hands of people that shouldn't have it. Um, New South Wales Police are the only people that have access and that is part of their responsibility within the local area commands to um, you know, contact licence holders when they want to arrange a... Um, a safe storage inspection. Speaking of that, um, I know there's been, I've had, a, I've had a few calls, or at least a few emails saying uh, that the law, uh, well, the uh, actor should say, says that they must call prior to making an appointment. Would that be appropriate? Because um, I know, I, well, I had one where he sort of, he just came, but I was happy for him to come in straight away, so that wasn't a big deal anyway. But is it good for the police to have a good relationship with shooters when making appointments, etc., just to, you know, to, uh, guess, work with shooters and shooters to work with police, I think? Generally speaking, um, you know, the police try to contact the licence holder prior to calling. I, I suppose you'll get that isolated case where they're in the area, they've, they've, they've got some inspections to do, and instead of, you know, going back to the station, they may call in, you know, unannounced, if you like. Um, but that's then up to the licence holder to decide if, if there hasn't been a prearranged, um, you know, arrangement to to go ahead, um, whether or not they, they allow it to happen. <laughs> now, Dennis, uh, re- recently, as you know, um, 
the Canadian government has abolished their uh, na national uh, registry. The New Zealand government have abolished it. They both stated that it is in, uh, ineffective in uh, solving crime and it's a, it's a huge expense to, for very little gain. Can I just get some comments from you on that? Um, I'm not sure of what the regime is in Canada. Um, I am fairly confident that they still have a licensing scheme. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, licensing, but whether or not that's a police-run uh, um, uh, service, I, I don't know. Um, but all I can say is that the, you know the registry is, um, you know, not too much of a cost burden on taxpayers. Uh, it's quite efficient. It's going to get better as we, um, you know, revamp our system. So. Um, yeah, I've got no problems with uh, the way it's working at the moment. Yeah, Dennis, to finish off, I've got a, actually a pretty good question, I think. Um, obviously, it's all paper-based system at the moment, sending in permits to acquire, licence applications, etc. Um, is there any time in the future that the government is looking at upgrading those services? Obviously, you, know, you guys have got to you know, field phone calls all day. I mean, I can imagine the calls are going to be quite inundated with phone calls. I've called recently. There's a lot, fairly decent waiting periods, like any organisation. Um, is there any time in the future that they think the government will you know, want to spend money on, say, automating the system, making it, maybe even where something like dealers would have access straight to PTA, straight from this, having a good... So, so the dealers, the firearms registry and the shooter can basically, what I'm saying, is all work together and make it as, as well, cut red tape but also make sure the services, I guess, are kept intact. Yeah, yeah no, these are, are, are all plans that are in the planning process now. As we speak, um, online services uh, uh, is a major um, change it's going to have. It's come out of the recent registry review. We've been asking it for it for quite some time. But, um, you know, uh, uh, money is always an issue. <laughs> um, Especially in government. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, but this is all going to be planned for, to be in, introduced probably over the next 18 months. All right, last question, Mars. Uh, Dennis, just, uh, just uh, my question's in two parts. Just quickly, uh, are you yourself a law-abiding firearm, firearm owner and, and have you met, uh, gone through the process and all the compliance and uh, all the things related to firearms? Not me personally. We do have a couple of uh, staff that are licensed shooters. One question, sorry, sorry to butt in this. I have heard before, this might be this is a good thing to clear up, that people that work for the um, firearms registry can't be firearm owners, incorrect? Incorrect, yes. All right, perfect. So I continue? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm not a, um, a shooter myself, um, but as I say, there has been, there are a number of staff that are, are shooters and uh, are licensed and are subject to the same uh, same rules as everybody else. All right, Muzz has got one last one. Please one, make this one the last one. One last question. Um, as you can appreciate, Dennis, I'm a law binding firearm owner. I've got uh, several firearms and I'll go through all the process, all the um, safety requirements and so on. I'll get the police visiting my home. But my concern, my personal concern is I've got my information on the New South Wales database. Uh, then I have police visiting my home who I don't know who they are. Then I have to give my information again uh, whenever I buy ammunition at a shop. So I'm constantly giving out my personal information. And my point of view, I guess, is that I guess... The more information I give out, the less safe I am. And, uh, and, and, and I think that the, the less information that a person gives out about the whereabouts of their firearms, law-abiding firearm owners, I think, I think we're safer. What do you have to say about that? Oh, look, you know, um, it's a requirement that people notify the registry of where they store their guns. 
um, so it's got to be stored somewhere. <laughs> um, uh, that, that's a fact of life, and it's a fact that police have to go out to firearm owners, and so they've got to be given who the licence holder is, where the address is, all those sorts of things. But do you think those things make us safer? Well, as I say, uh, I, I do believe that's the case. Um, if people are, are aware that the police are diligent in ensuring safe storage requirements are met, less chance of firearms being stolen, less chance of them getting in the wrong hands. <laughs> Perfect. Dennis, I appreciate your time representing the New South Wales Firearms Registry today. Thank, Thank you very you, much. You've been a great sport. Thank you. <laughs> Next up on the best of AHP episode 100, this was a great one. I had a really good chat to Cole Allison. Now, Cole is a hunter, shooter, journalist. He's written books. He's very predominant in the hunting and shooting fishing journalism arena. Um, He lives at Port Macquarie, and uh, he talks about a very interesting thing when he uh, was basically sitting across from uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, so a very, very interesting conversation I had with Cole about this. So I want you to listen to it, so check out what Cole had to say about uh, his meeting with Saddam Hussein. Interesting stuff. You ended up, as you were saying before, you ended up shooting uh, professionally for white-tailed deer. For the, is it a, was it a German export market or company? Can yep. you tell us about that on the Stewart Island? What, yeah, what was that like? And then, you, know, you did it for 12 months. And what, Well, what, I was a kid, yeah. mate, and what we used to do, what we did, I, I, I teamed up with a German bloke, a fellow named Alf Kirsten, who was a, who was a pretty keen hunter like I was. Um, and I'd done a couple of trophy hunts on the island before then. I'd shot a couple of reasonable white-tailed stags, bucks. So... Uh, I saw the opportunity, and no one else was doing it at the time. Um, and I'd had some pretty good runs. In, I had a house in Queenstown for three years when I lived in New Zealand. I rented it out, and when I wasn't there, I'd, I'd sublet it to other people. And I shot a lot of deer in the local valleys from the meat market while I was looking for big stags. So I thought, OK, I can do this. So I got got in touch with a lot of the local fishermen and found two or three who were amenable, quite happy to uh, to drop us off. And what we used to do, they'd, we'd provision up and then we'd load up on one of the fishing boats and they'd drop us off at the various coves, you know, up and around the island. Yep. And we'd set up a camp and we'd hunt. Uh, but you wouldn't be hunting very far because the, the first after a dozen shots, whitetails just clear out, you know, they weren't, they didn't hang around. So then you, we worked it out that you just you go in, shoot for three or four days and then clear out. But it didn't always work like that. I once uh, we once starved for seventeen days. I nearly died on that trip. Yeah, well, that was my next question. A huge actually. storm blew up, you know, and and the fishing boat couldn't come across the uh, from the mainland to pick us up. <laughs> so all our meat had rotted, and uh, you know the water was there wasn't much fresh water where we were, and we were in a punga hut, you know, one of those tree fern huts, and we just got weak. And we we got a, we got some dysentery trying to eat some cooked meat, so that didn't help us. And uh, in the end, we just lay in our bloodies in my tent. I had a pup tent, and that was we 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 slept in there and cooked in the panga hut. I just lay in there, and and I, I just can't believe it. You know, we got eaten alive by mosquitoes. At one stage, I looked at my arm, and it was just black with mozzies. So they sapped the energy out of us. And generally, we were pretty run down. We'd been knocking ourselves about, carrying carcasses around for for months. 
So we just sort of lay there and accepted that we were either going to die or get rescued. We didn't have the energy to climb up on the hill and, and set a bush fire going. And, and all this time, this bloody howling gale, 80 knot wind, just blew and blew and blew. Fovo Straits, one of the roughest straits in the world. And in the end, the boat came and, you know, we had the big blast out in the ocean and we sort of crawled out and sort of crawled down to the beach, got on the, got on the boat. And all we'd been thinking about between us, I think, for the last two weeks was chocolate, <laughs> chocolate fudge, you know, all that sort of hot biscuits <laughs> and stuff like that. And we stoked all that stuff down, burlied the fishes immediately. And then two days later, we were shooting wild cattle on a place called Lee Bay. So no lasting effect, mate, but uh, effect on the psyche, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I couldn't imagine what. Did you, did you honestly think at one stage, like, you know, geez, I might, I might die here? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I thought it was all over, over. But, you know, I've had a lot of experiences like that over the years. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you, uh, you, you get a bit uh, a bit sanguine about it all in the end, I think. Yeah, I know. When I was reading your bio, my my head was spinning about, you know, just reading all the stuff you'd done. I think, man, this guy's done it all. Like, I'm jealous, you know. I mean, I knew you'd done a lot of stuff. But when I got your your, your bio you sent me, I was just like... Oh, you've, you know, you certainly, you certainly, you know, you won't, uh, when you get a bit older, you won't regret things, I don't think. No, I don't think so either. You know, I've had a lot of people try to get me to write a general biography, but, you know, there's a lot of things in your life you don't want people to know about, isn't there? <laughs> so I've never done it, but... Uh, <laughs> what, yeah. That'll be half the book, will it? Or? <laughs> well, it probably would be, yeah. I mean, I met Saddam Hussein once. He threatened me with a pistol. You know, the dictator of Iraq that the Yanks yeah, hanged no, a couple no, you've of years back. You've got to tell us his story. You have to tell us yeah, his story. Yeah, actually, it's not a bad story. I, I was the only guy sucker in the newsroom one Sunday when the Kemlani affair blew up in 72. Gough Whitlam had been accused of uh, trying to borrow $2.5 million from the Arabs, the Arabs in this case being Ara- Iraqis. And the, and the kingpin in the story was a bloke named Kemlani. And uh, I was the only guy in the, in the newsroom. I was column 8 at the time, the Herald's uh, flagship columnist. And uh, I was the only one who happened to have his passport with him. Don't ask me why, but anyway, I had it. So next thing I know, I'm on a, on a bloody ship to the Middle East, on a plane to the Middle East, where I arrived and there was snow on the Elbers Mountains and I was in a T-shirt and, a, you know, sort of a pair of jeans. Anyway, I ended up, uh, I ended up walking into the 16th breakdown of the ceasefire in, in, in Beirut. When the plane landed, they were shelling the bloody airport mortar bombs flying everywhere, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> and I get to go to the Australian Embassy on what was called, used to be called the Paris of the Pacific, Beirut, and the whole joint was shot up. The Australian Embassy was on fire, uh, smoke pouring everywhere. There were people shooting all over the place. I ended up in a room, and, and I opened the door and slipped on the shells. There'd been some bloke shoot, shooting all sorts of, you know, shells off the, off the, off the balcony, and the room was full of casings. Uh, a couple of days later, I'm in a in a in a in a taxi, uh, going down a street. I forget. I was following up somebody, some some uh, some line to try and find this Kemlani guy. Going down a back street, and suddenly all the shutters on the windows all rattled closed. And the taxi driver said, "Oh, fuck!" Uh, and just as he said that, he's trying to find a way out of this alley. A tank came around from 200 yards down the road. We're in a back alley, right? 200 yards down the road, a tank comes, and then suddenly behind us is another one, and the tank duel starts with us in the middle. So oh, I, no way. I had a, we had one shell go straight between us, 
straight through between between the driver and I, and 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 they and the uh, there was a phalanges tank that was the Syrians behind us. They started opening up, and it was about 13 or 14 people run in front of us, and they all got bloody nailed. Just then, we turned the corner and got out of the place. So that was pretty hairy. Oh, wow. Anyway, eventually, eventually, via a long circuitous route through the Middle East, I ended up in Iraq. I was the first, first Brit or British person to get in there since they, the Brits got shut out, thrown out in the 50s. All the Iraqis wanted to know was how the hell I got into the joint. But anyway, it's a long story. Um, and I sat for four or five days waiting to talk to someone to ask them about, did they offer Scott Whitlam all this money, right? doesn't seem a lot of money today, but it was a lot of money then. It was, a pol- was political, pol- so political, it just wasn't funny. The country was polarised by Whitlam. And uh, anyway, eventually after four days, we're twiddling the thumbs, thinking, God, you know, I had 64 questions to ask this bloke. Saddam Hussein, it turns out his name was. Anyway, I get called into this office and the information minister introduced himself, Saddam Hussein. That's what he was then, the information minister, which meant he was he was a spy master and a bloke who ran the Secret Service. And uh, the first question I asked him was, uh, you know, did you uh, did you offer Gough Whitlam two and a half million dollars to uh, tide him over during their problems? And uh, he didn't say anything. He just pulled out this pearl-handled pistol flicked it around on his uh, in front of me on the desk by which stage I was just about crapping myself <laughs> and uh, and then he just put it in his pocket, got up and said no comment and walked out the door. That was it. I never got to answer the other, ask him the other 63 questions. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. oh, I never did find Ken Lani. No one did. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. Oh, mate, you've had some stories. I mean, a bloody tank shell going through the middle of a uh, taxi. Oh, just, jeez, mate. Yeah, I had a lot happen that week, or the two weeks. <laughs> That's enough for a was, lifetime. Yeah, it was a bit. Yeah. So you, you were saying... And I didn't know who Saddam Hussein was at the time. He was just another bloody Arab flanker, you know, but uh, it turned out, of course, that he was a, he was a big man. Yeah. Ended up throwing out uh, what, the Ba'athist uh, government uh, leader in a coup and uh, took over the joint, and the rest, of course, is history. Next up on the best of AHP episode 100 is, uh, this was at the SHOT Show as well, this was uh, Senator David Lionhelm for New South Wales um, talking about Malabar rifle range and um, if the government tried to, I guess, in essence, screw with shooters, uh, there's something that David Lionhelm would do uh, in regards to his response to any attack on hunting, shooting and fishing uh, while he was in the Senate and also what you know benefit he could have in the Senate. But this is what he said if and when the government tried to push shooters off at Malabar rifle range. There will be issues come up not very much in the form of legislation. It's mostly in the form of administrative stuff. So uh, how the customs people are dealing with firearms-related issues and accessories and so forth, um, how they're dealing with the administration of, uh, of their jurisdiction, if you like. It comes under Attorney General or Justice Department most of the time and, uh, and, and they're not legislative things. So the way you can deal with that as a senator... Well, there's several, but the, the most powerful one is called estimates. So 
what happens is there, there is a committee of senators and they call up uh, the heads of the departments that are relevant and they question them, basically, and, and they have to defend themselves. So, for example, if the customs department is giving people a hard time importing firearms or firearms accessories, we can, um, we can go to the, or call the head of the department up and we can say, what do you think you're doing? Why are you doing that? Why are you interpreting the act that way or the regulations that way? And get them to justify themselves, basically. You can do, do things like that. The other area that I have already indicated I intend to do something about is uh, Malabar in Sydney. Malabar Rifle Range in Sydney. Its tenure is uh, uncertain. Um, there are uh, nice-sounding words coming out of the government that they're going to do something about it, but here we are nine months into the government and it's still far from settled. And um, I'm thinking that uh, there will be a day when they will need my vote and uh, uh, I will have them with a piece of their anatomy in my hand and I can either squeeze or let go and uh, and if they um, and if they agree to or if they if they agree to what I want in other words uh, putting Malabar on secure tenure I won't squeeze Next up on the Best of AHP was for episode 11, actually, was David Hawker. Now, David was the member for Wannan in Victoria. He was also the Speaker of the House, and he was also on the Consultative Committee uh, regarding firearms during the 1996 Howard buyback and gun reforms. Uh, we all know, again, New Zealand, Canada don't have these problems. They all know they have semi-automatic weapons. They have, like, New Zealand AR-15s. Uh, Pump shotguns, semi-automatic shotguns, and there is no problem with those particular firearms because they haven't had a massacre since 1996 either. And David Hawker gives us a great account during that time uh, of how the government came to some of these decisions, uh, what they were thinking, why they were thinking it. So I wanted you to listen. This is David Hawker, member for Wannan and Speaker of the House. So listen to have a check out what David Hawker had to say. So, David, did the government consult the... uh Constitutive Committee on the category change. And what I mean by that is why did they allow pump rifles and lever-action shotguns and lever-action rifles to remain on a Cat B, yet they removed the semi-auto and the pump shotguns? I mean, there's a few, obviously, we have a lot of, uh, you know, um, lever-action rifles, but we also have the, you know, like the IACs, the the five-shot IAC 1887. You can buy them in the 20-inch barrel on a coach gun. Why didn't they ever look at the shotgun for the lever-action shotgun? I mean, that can still hold, if you put one in the shoot there as well, you can hold six in that. And it still can shoot just as quick as a uh, semi-auto and a, and a uh, pump-action shotgun if you know how to use it. I think it's a lot about perceptions, and that's politics is often about perceptions. And if you mention the word automatic or semi-automatic, people's perceptions were quite different, particularly after what happened at Port Arthur, than if you tried to complicate it with things that they probably, the general population didn't even understand. But they understood the word automatic because they'd seen so many movies, you know, with... Um, Sylvester Stallone or whoever sort of exactly. firing off at great rate. Um, so they, that's what they associated it with. So, yeah, it's perceptions. That's what it's about. Wow. It's so interesting how some things can just be hedged on something like that. It's, just, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Well, it is worrying, but it shows that 
at times there's a lot of ignorance in the community, not just on this, a lot of things. And um, if people don't counter those uh, perceptions, uh, they can take hold, and it's very hard to change it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I go hunting a fair bit, and what I notice amongst friends and and people that know that I'm a shooter is that they assume that shooting is easy. This is the thing I find very hard. So I was like, I go to the range, I spend, you know, I've spent hours shooting clay targets, you know, hours out in the field to become a better hunter. I mean, it's so it's great to be able to shoot from say a bench rest or you know uh, shooting hitting targets and paper. But when you go out in the field, I mean, sometimes I mean, I guess everybody's done it. I've missed shots at. 40 or 50 metres. I mean, people assume it's so easy, yet they see, as you've just stated, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Rambo popping off headshots at, you know, three, four, five hundred metres, thinking that's something that happens as a, like, it's just a day-to-day occurrence. I mean, that's the part that's mind-boggling to me. I mean, a lot of people spend hours on their chosen sport uh, to, to, to become good and to become competitive and you know, it's just the the perception is interesting that you know it's, it's somehow like they see these sniper movies and it's somehow easy. Or I mean, it's definitely not easy. Oh no, I look. We certainly understand that. I think the one of the uh, real pluses we have in Australia and have had for some years now is the fact that we have shooters who are winning gold medals at the Olympics, and that demonstrates there's a very high degree of skill there because we haven't always been able to do that, and it's damned hard. And this, and you know, we see it's as part of the divide. I call it the urban-rural divide. Uh, we see in the country, for example. I mean, I know in Western Victoria, you can pick up one of the local papers every few weeks, and there'll be a photograph on the sporting page of someone who's just won a medal or won a competition holding up a shotgun. And people in the country just say, "Well, of course, why wouldn't it be otherwise?" But if it was a city, you'd find it pretty hard to get on one of the daily national papers, the same sort of photo, unless it's Russell Mark or Michael Diamond winning the gold, and then they will probably get a photo. But uh, this is uh, part of the difficulty we have nowadays in our community, is there is a big divide, and people in the city mostly don't own firearms. Uh, They've formed an opinion, as we say, from what they've seen in films or on television, and they have a, a growing fear. And uh, it's a big change because um, old friends of mine used to say when they did their national service back in the 50s, it was or cadets, school cadets, it was pretty common to just hop on a tram. I'm sorry, I'm a Victorian, I'm talking about trams. Uh, with a 303 rifle and no one would even blink. And, uh, you know, time, if you did it now, of course, there'd be an outcry. But it, times have changed. And, uh, you know, we've just got to work within the framework we have now and I think we can do with a, there's a lot of good stories and um, you know if we start on vermin and those sort of things and the good work that um, our representatives are doing through the shooting organizations uh, there's a good story to tell and we can counter a very very small minority who make an awful lot of noise and I sort of think of my dear old mothers saying you know empty vessels make the most noise and when I look at some of the anti-gun lobbyists I think yeah I know what she's talking about <laughs> good old mum good old mum yeah <laughs> so um, when the government when the government was um, obviously talking to the, the conservative committee how was the list of banned say versus legal firearms how was that determined was it as you said before just anything auto was automatically banned or how did they how did they come up with the uh, ban list uh, well there's a combination of things yes the perceptions about the terminology were, were played quite a role uh, unfortunately the government department 
Justice or Attorney Generals, had been pushing stronger firearm laws for a long time with the previous government uh, in particular. Uh, so they'd already got a list together. It had been sitting around in the, you know, if you remember the Yes Minister thing, it was all sitting in the drawer and it was just waiting for another minister to come along and it would be pulled out and see if this minister would accept it. So those lists had been prepared long, long before 1996. So, um, yeah, that's where the list came from. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you think the long-term, say, aim for the government regarding at least current firearms laws is to maintain what we have now, say, as of 2011? Or do you still think there's a, you know, like a, a possibility that they may you know, erode the very small remaining set of rights to possess firearms that we've got now? Uh, I don't think governments are really looking to get involved either way, uh, by and large. I mean, there's a minority parties that you could say there are. The real answer to that is that um, while governments understand that the shooters have, well, certainly have their own rights, and they are quite effective in lobbying, in your state, for example, there's a, currently, I think, one member of the state parliament in the Shooters' Party, there have been two. Um, while the shooting organisations continue to lobby and present their case in a rational way to government and opposition, always both sides, uh, I don't think you'll see anything change. Um, and, that, and I can see that growing because, to give an example, uh, in Victoria, each year the, uh, again, I quote Field and Game because I'm actually a patron of Field and Game, but I'm also a life member of Sporting Shooters, so I'd like to get involved with everyone. Yep. Um, Field and Game actually put on a politician's shoot once a year. No, it's not about shooting politicians. It's actually getting people who've probably never held a gun in their life to go out to the gun club and fire a shotgun, and they bring along... Uh, well, Russell Markoff and comes along with his wife, Lauren, uh, and gives a bit of coaching. Uh, and they get people who've never held a gun before actually hitting targets, you know, clay targets. I mean, they might be the hardest targets. That doesn't matter. The fact is they're hitting them. And you ought to see the look on their face. They're absolutely thrilled. And this is what, it's, this is what lobbying is all about. It's getting through to the people who don't know what's happening so that they're not scared, they're not worried about it, they're comfortable, and importantly, they know the people who are involved don't have two heads or something worse. They're just normal citizens like you and I. We're just going to go to a quick break here on AHP Digital and we will be right back. Don't go anywhere. Do you have dull, blunt or badly sharpened knives that couldn't skin a cat? At Scary Sharp, we use a multi-step grinding system and will hand sharpen your blades to a precise edge. Our process of sharpening knives will have your blades splitting hairs for a surprisingly low cost. Not only do we sharpen knives, but we also sharpen scissors, clippers, garden tools, arrowheads, axes, or anything that holds an edge. We are located close to Canberra, and we also have a mail-in service. Visit Scary Sharp on Facebook, or call Bob on 0410 432 852, and find out how we can meet your sharpening needs. Scary Sharp. If it cuts, we can sharpen it. Are you looking to buy your first gun safe? Perhaps you need more room for your prized collection. Lockaway Safes provides the world's most advanced anti-pry technology. The swing and slide system is truly revolutionary. Drop into your nearest Beretta dealer or visit lockawaysafes.com.au. Lockaway, the only serious choice in firearms protection. 
Next up on episode 100, the best of AHP. This is one of the only antis I've actually had on my show. Uh, it was episode 21, the Coalition Against Duck Shootings, Laurie Levy. Uh, Laurie said some interesting things about wounded ducks, that one in four ducks fly away wounded, and they would shut shop if there was an Olympic standard of duck shooting uh, in Australia. And if you had to pass a duck shooting test, basically, I presume that's what would happen, uh, or that's what he's talking about. Very interesting segment. A lot of you know I do try and talk to a lot of antis. I've emailed quite a few from the Greens. Uh, I, actually, just last week... Before this show, or you're listening to now, I, I tried to find out more about Samantha Lee. I uh, tried to get her on the show. Obviously, I didn't get a response. So this is one of the only antis I've actually had on the show. Uh, this is the part I decided to take out about the Olympic standard. Thought it was interesting. Go back and listen to episode 21 if you want to listen to that show in its entirety. So here's what the Coalition Against Duck Shootings, Laurie Levy, had to say. I didn't say I didn't say I agree with you. I, I can't speak for all hunters out there. And I'm sure you can't speak for all uh, rescuers and protesters out there either. So it, it all just depends on you know your interpretation. But anyone I've ever hunted, if I've helped rice permit uh, under mitigation in the Riverina, I certainly don't cheer that I if it, if it, if it injured if it injured a duck got injured. It, but again, it goes back to the saying like what you say it's barbaric, but what what would it mean if that no. Uh, ducks were ever wounded. If we could guarantee no ducks were ever wounded, then it wouldn't be barbaric. Well, you, you can't do that. So that, that's, that, that's the reality of the situation. You, you know, shooters, are shoot, the range of a shotgun is, what, 50 to 70 metres. Shooters shoot at birds that are out of range. You can see birds that are hit. They flinch and they continue to fly, wounded. And, and also you have shooters who are bad shots. You, you have... You have days that are raining when they're shooting in the rain. There might be a high wind. Uh, and in 1985, I first went out to the wetlands just to have a look around. I found a lot of illegally shot protected species. And when I spoke to the wildlife officer, and I won't use his name now, sure. uh, but he said that on the opening morning of the 85 season, he was out on the wetlands shooting when he was on duty, supposedly enforcing the law, he shot eight birds that morning and four escaped wounded. And I thought to myself, that's a 50% wounding rate. And if that's a wildlife officer getting a 50% wounding rate, what are all the other shooters doing out there? And that's, that's one of okay. the reasons yep. that I went out there with a team of 15 in 1986. Yep. Now, what I'm saying is, if you think shooters are capable of being out there on the water. What I've suggested for the last few years is that an Olympic standard accuracy test be brought in before shooters are allowed to go out. Okay, and, let's and they say have that to was. pass that test yep. before going out onto the water. Okay, let's say that was done and that, that, that did happen. Therefore, would you cease all your rescuing and protesting activities? Um, if, if that was brought in, then we so probably you would, not, would. You would. Okay. All right, so no, if you bring in, if you bring in an Olympic standard accuracy test for all shooters, we would pull the plug on our campaign. Okay. Well, I guess we obviously it depends what you mean. What, yeah, what was meant by an Olympic standard? Obviously, we don't. You know, we're not sure what the Olympic standard what would be and what the ins and outs would be. But okay, and no, I appreciate your. Well, they would have to reach the standard of uh, competence of a Russell Mark or a Michael Diamond. Now, I'm prepared to go with that. 
Um, now, if if you think shooters are so good out there, then let's bring in, let's work together, Jason, to bring what, in an that, Olympic that, standard that, yeah, accuracy not getting, test. Not getting into the semantics of it, but what would be, you know, what Olympic standard? What hitting three hundred out of three hundred? I mean, that be would that That's be realistic? It. So, so you would want them, so as I said before in my previous um, in my previous thing, I said, uh, if hunters, I said, let's say there was an Olympic stand and hunters killed their ducks instantly. None were ever wounded and no protected species was ever shot due to the education such as the wit test. That, you would then say, um, that, that means you would support duck hunting. You would have to support duck hunting. If there was an Olympic standard and you said every duck was shot, Every duck was instantly killed on being shot because they'd been Olympic standard uh, proficiency and no species due to education, um, sorry, no protected species due to education because we can you know, positively identify what protected species are. That means, you, that means you would be in support of duck shooting. No, no, I wouldn't be in support of it, but... Uh, you, but you, you would allow it to go ahead and be, and be fine if, with that and not, if, and not if, be out there on the wetlands. If... if the, the duck shooters in Victoria, as an example, yep. uh, are forced to sit an Olympic standard accuracy test, then we would give away the campaign. Yeah, but, but so also, no, no Olympic now, now standard. Now, can I, can I say, it, can I say in further interviews that you agree with that, that Olympic standard accuracy test should be brought in? Who, did I say that, did you say? No, I, I'm saying you agree with that. Oh, I can I say, can again, I say, I said, what hit? would be an Olympic standard? Russell Mark or Michael Diamond, Diamond don't hit 300, 300. They have, I mean, I, I've had Russell Mark on my show, and I mean, he's missed targets. He, ah. He's missed targets. Ah, well, then he wouldn't be allowed to shoot native water birds if he misses targets. <laughs> but then, so what you're saying is if uh, if someone attends, say, a, a, let's say, let's say Russell, Mark, Michael, Diamond, they attend the Olympics. So what they're saying is they shouldn't attend the Olympics if, let's say, their standard is, you know, they've got 200 targets to hit. So what you're saying there in that respect is if they don't hit 200 targets, they're not at the standard to be in the Olympics and they've won Australia gold medals in Olympic sport. Oh, no, they, they should be because they're Australia's best shooters. And I, and I think... But they're not hitting 200 out of 200 on a consistent basis either, not, not all the right. time. That's right. Olympic standard shooters don't hit the target every time. Exactly. So even the point I'm making yeah. here is even Olympic standard shooters would be wounding birds out there. And you're saying to me, would I agree that duck shooting should continue if no birds were wounded? Well, then again, missing targets and wounding birds, a bit, bit of a different comparison there. What's the what's the difference? If he if he hits 190 and miss and miss and mi and misses 10 times, that mean does that mean he wounded a clay target? Because <laughs> that that because <laughs> that no, but that would imply he, he that would imply he hit the target. <laughs> no, no, no. What 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 the well, shooting? What you saying to me? You go if he if he hits the target or he doesn't hit the target. So therefore, if he shot and missed the target, it wouldn't be a wounded bird. What I'm saying is you, that I Olympic like what you're saying. Olympic shooters right who miss. Yeah. Don't cause any suffering by missing. N Duck shooters, when they miss, okay. do cause suffering. That's the difference How between a clay target shooter yeah. and a duck shooter. Okay, so if, if if Olympic shooters miss, you know, fifty shots out of three hundred, uh, and hit and, and miss the targets, well, there's no suffering caused because they're only they're only clay targets. Yeah. But Yep. If duck shooters are shooting at wounded at, at birds and wounding them, 
then, then Hang they on. are causing enormous suffering okay, to beautiful I, birds. Okay, I, 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 if they were wounded, but again, I get back to my point, is that if, if you're saying they're missing, there's only, there's only plus or negative in clay target. You either hit or you don't hit. Now, yeah. let's say a duck shooter goes out, he misses the bird totally. I mean, where's the suffering? What, to the air around him? Where's the suffering if the bird has not been hit and he has missed the bird genuinely outright? Like a clay target shooter like Michael Diamond, Russell Mark, Adam Vella, those guys, they would hit the target or miss the target. There's no... You, you're saying if he misses the target, therefore the wounded, the bird is going to be wounded. What the, the, if he misses the, the, the bird? The problem you have with birds is they can be hit but still wounded. I agree with that, yeah. But then again, also for hit in clay targets, either hit or a miss, there's no in between. That's right, in clay targets. But but with with birds, wounded once once a bird has been hit and it's wounded, then it's suffering, and that bird will suffer. I mean, I mean we we have uh, wounded birds X-rayed, and you can see the pellets that are lodged near nerves, bones, and you can and those birds, even if they survive. Uh, out in the wild, they're going to be suffering because of those injuries. And to me, that is a barbaric act, uh, activity in the in the 21st century, and it's something that has to come to an end. And the moment it does come to an end, Jason, yeah. then I retire. Uh, I'll be off the shooters' backs. And and you, you see, the other thing you've got to consider is that all other shooters suffer for what duck shooters do because the, 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 the amount of bad publicity that duck shooters continually get rubs off on clay target shooters, feral animal shooters, deer shooters. They all suffer because of the bad image but that, that, could duck go shoot, that, hang on, that yeah, duck go shooters on. have. Get rid of duck shooting and then there'll be no one out there attacking or fighting other shooters. But then so, we could also say that, you know, again, if uh, protesters, like, uh, as I said, the lady that got shot breaking the law, entering the water prior to the designated time, that means we could say it gives uh, your organisation, uh, not want to say a bad name, but gives your organisation some not good publicity on, you know, for the, for the cause you're trying to put forward and then may brandish other rescuing or protesting activities with the same brush as well. The last thing we want is for any of our rescuers to get hurt out there. But I do acknowledge that their concern for our native water birds uh, and their courage and commitment in being out there over the last 25 years has brought about enormous change that has helped our native water birds in this country. I mean, saying that, I, 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 I don't think in my mind, I mean, is, is a life, are we willing to lose a life for that lady to save that one injured water bird, is that the price we're willing to pay? Well, I hope we never have to pay that. Neither do me. I agree, 100% agree with you. Neither do I. Neither. Do. Next up on episode 100, the best of AHP. This one's interesting. Uh, I've interviewed two lawyers on uh, the Australian Hunting Podcast. One is Stephen Mainstein, based in Sydney, and also Ross Williamson, based in uh, WA, so trying to cover a lot of the different country. As you know, some people will fall foul of the law. Uh, just make sure, again, safe storage is important. Make sure you're cleaning up after yourself. Make sure you've got all your ammunition stored correctly. Uh, and if you ever need help, contact me. 
because I know a lawyer somewhere across the country that will be able to help you. Uh, this one was about Stephen Mainstone uh, representing a client where basically the police didn't weigh the safe and uh, you'll find out what happens. So uh, this one is Stephen Mainstone, lawyer based in Sydney, and this is what Stephen had to say of the best of AHP. Uh, exactly. What are you? What are some of the regular things that you're normally seeing? Is it generally around safe storage? Is it a multitude of different things? And what would you say? I mean, we could probably say one of the silliest ones. But what's one of the most probably interesting ones that you've come? You've probably come up with in your in your time of uh, uh, helping out clients with their issues. But what's one of the you know inter- most interesting ones you've sort of had? Well, I think Jason, you could probably put it into three categories uh, where. I mainly assist people in relation to firearms law. One would be in relation to apprehended violence orders. Yep. The second one would be in in relation to safe storage at home. And thirdly, in relation to the transportation of firearms. In relation to the matter of safe storage, I had a matter recently where the police alleged that a fellow wasn't safe keeping his firearms at home because they alleged that his safe weighed less than 150 kilograms and wasn't bolted to the floor or wall of his premises. Now, as most of your listeners know, if your safe does weigh less than 150 kilograms, it does have to be bolted to the safe or to the wall or secured to the premises. But this was a situation where the police just made a guesstimate that it weighed under 150 kilos, didn't weigh it. Um, And in fact, the the safe weighed more than 150 kilograms, which my client knew, and when that was raised in court, the police officer under cross-examination conceded that he'd never weighed it. He just took a guess and accepted <laughs> that uh, it weighed over that amount because my client, for the court proceedings, we arranged for, to get his safe weighed, and it weighed, I think, about 170 kilos. <laughs> what do they do when they're... Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I'm just... What, what do they do when they sit there and they're like the judge or yourself cross-examines them? Did you actually weigh the safe and they say no? Like, it's just embarrassing. It'd be just embarrassing, wouldn't it? Well, I, I, I think it would be. I mean, from my experience as a police officer, if I'm going to make an allegation against someone and it's going to be tested in court, I want to make sure that I know what I'm doing at the time when I make the allegation and I can support it with evidence. Yeah, is that, I mean, is that just... Oh, I, mean, I don't even know what to say. Is that, are they, like, surely that would be your first point of call to say, well, yes, if, he's, if I'm saying it's, uh, I should know is the particular model uh, and ha- at least check the specifications of that particular model of of, uh, of of safe or what should you know, like how, how can you is that just that seems amateurish to me to make you know for a police officer of the law to sort of to, to to say that without even doing the just the bare minimum to see if actually the safe weighs over the 150 kilos. Well, that's right, and I mean, um, for your listener's point of view, if that would was the case, and and your listener knew full well that your safe did weigh 150 kilo, over 150 kilograms and the police came to you on a safe inspection and said you haven't got this bolted to the floor, um, you need to have it bolted to the floor, I, that what you need to do is very politely but firmly say to the police officer, look, this safe weighs more than 150 kilograms and uh, it doesn't need to be bolted to the floor. Yeah, I know that's a lot of my guests actually uh, sent me emails and that was a huge, actually was quite probably about I reckon, 10 people or so actually uh, emailed me and through Facebook said, you know, the police have come to their premises and said, no, no, they've actually said like it's over 150 kilos. They say, no, 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 it's got to be bolted down regardless. And these are the sort of things, you know, some shooters are having to sort of, you know, put up with and trying to be friendly and, and reasonable. But, you know, it depends on the, you know, the officer that comes, the licensing officer that comes out to check and... Some, there seems to be a bit of a mix-up going on about the 150 kilos. 
Yeah, well, you're right there, Jason. And I, I, again, I think it goes back to what I said before about um, some police are very much across the firearms laws. Uh, other police are not necessarily as far across them as they should be. They might only be new into the area, might be an inexperienced officer, and they don't necessarily fully understand or have fully looked at the legislation and uh, it can cause those sort of problems but as I said um, perhaps your listeners um, just in a very polite but firm way can say well if it weighs more than 150 kilograms it doesn't need to be secured um, because that's what the law is. (laughs) Yeah exactly was that one obviously once you cross exact was that was that quashed straight away or? Well that 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 part um, there was more issues in that in that court matter but that was certainly something that the um the magistrate uh, accepted straight away and said he accepted the fact that uh, the police officer was um, wrong in making that assertion in regards safe and what his requirements were. Yeah. So what happens if, you know, like, sorry to go off a little bit of track here, but let's say they are making those allegations, unfounded allegations, and you go before, I mean, is anybody uh, uh, talking about, you know, compensation or anything like that in regards to, like, because you know, obviously it's costing you know a person to hire yourself to come and represent them and costing them probably quite a lot of money too to to represent them in court. And uh, is there any uh, reprimands for police making false allegations? I mean, I know they probably do make them in good in good faith of what they think is going to happen. But if it's just at the end of the day not doing the required checks, what is there any punishment for police in making such allegations, or is it just well, yeah, you're not guilty, off you go. It's cost you four, five, six, ten thousand dollars to be represented, or whatever. Yeah, you know, depending on how much it could be have a nice day, you've still got your firearms licence. Like, sometimes that's just not good enough. And yes, I agree with you. And there are some sanctions that can be put in place. There is certainly the discretion in a court in those circumstances where a court consider, can consider an application on behalf of someone who's had charges against them dismissed that have been brought by the police um, to have their legal professional costs paid. Now, it is a discretionary thing on behalf of the court. Uh, and what the applicant has to make, so the, the person who's had the charges dismissed, the, what the application has to be made at that point in time to the magistrate by their lawyer, is that um, because of the charge being dismissed, um, that mightn't have been properly uh, investigated by the police. There are a number of criteria that the magistrate can look at. One of them is that, that a matter wasn't properly investigated, and if, the, uh, if they'd properly investigated it, that it would have brought material to light, which mightn't have brought the prosecution. Um, there can be even more serious things where if the magistrate is um, of the view that the proceedings have been brought in bad faith or there was a, a malicious prosecution. But generally on these sort of matters, the magistrate is satisfied that the police investigated the matter properly. And certainly in matters where it's very basic thing like that, that I've just you know, spoken about, um, a lot of the time a magistrate will say, well, look, you know, this matter certainly hasn't been properly investigated. And um, it's a situation where, in the interests of justice, given the the person who's been found guilty has had to pay for a lawyer to be there at court and represent, can award costs. Now, it might not mean that they get all their legal professional costs refunded. They they may get a portion of it, but generally I've found... And so going back to that issue that I spoke earlier about, about the, the fellow with the toy gun, where we had those charges dismissed, uh, the magistrate felt in those circumstances that, in the interests of justice he should get an award of all his legal professional costs paid by the police, and that's what happened. Yeah, interesting. Quite interesting. To finish off that question, um, have you got maybe one more you can share with us, uh, Steve, before we go on to the next question? Um, Yeah, yeah. In relation to one of the other main issues I spoke about, which was uh, apprehended violence orders. 
yep. as your listeners probably know, that um, if a final apprehended violence order is made against the person who holds a firearms licence, that licence is automatically revoked and they can't reapply for a period of 10 years. Yep. Now, um, I had a matter recently where a fellow had an apprehended violence order made against him in the local court and um, this was... Um, before I became involved with this fellow, um, he came to me after it had been made because of the impact on his licence. He um, is a professional shooter, professional roo shooter, and we appealed that to the district court. And again, the district court felt that there were insufficient grounds from the magistrate or from the magistrate's finding and quashed that apprehended violence order. Now. Following that happen, happening, I immediately wrote to the firearms registry and said, well, look, the reason why you initially suspended his licence was because of these apprehended violence order proceedings and you should therefore now reinstate his licence because the reason why he was suspended in the first place has now yep. been quashed by the district court. That's right, yep. Um, firearms registry have taken a very interesting view with that and said, no, we disagree because there was originally an order made by a magistrate, then that's enough for us to wow. revoke his licence. So at the moment, that matter is, is presently before the Administrative Decisions Tribunal on that issue. Our argument, of course, is if the reason why his licence was suspended or revoked now no longer exists at law, which is what the case is because the District Court quashed the magistrate's decision, then you've got nothing to base continuing to revoke his licence. Unfortunately, at the moment, mm. the firearms registry takes a differing view, so that's that's a matter that's still ongoing and, and uh, maybe something I can tell you about in um, sometime in the near future, hopefully with a, a good result that that fellow gets his licence back. Yeah, how, how do you... I mean, without sort of getting too far in it, do you feel that's, that's going to hopefully end positively? I mean, I can just... I mean, it doesn't... That's, I don't know how they're saying that. It just seems like, com again, common sense to me. Mm. Look, I'm very confident that we'll get a good decision in the tribunal in relation to that. The initial indications from the tribunal um, in the early stages of the proceedings are that um, that seems to be the way that the tribunal is thinking as well because that, that was something that was put to the um, the solicitor representing the Commissioner of Police and the Firearms Registry in the initial um, proceedings. So um, it's now at the point of um, a decisions being made uh, by the tribunal as to whether they accept our argument or whether they accept the Commissioner's argument that the tribunal doesn't have any jurisdiction to hear it because of the earlier decision. But yeah, I'm feeling feeling very confident on behalf of my client. Next up on the Best of AHP, this was from episode 81. Uh, the Shooters and Fishers Party's Robert Borzak, just before the election uh, here in New South Wales in 2015. This is about Jason Wood. You know Jason Wood from Victoria uh, in the seat of Latrobe, who has been one of the biggest people pushing for the animal hunting, like carcasses not coming into the country, trophies, any animal parts. Uh, he's been in cahoots with Environment Minister Greg Hunt. And so this is what Robert Borzak had to say about uh, Jason Wood. And I could feel the passion in Robert's voice, which is always appreciated. I like to see that my politicians, that are get paid good money, uh, this is any politician advocating for our shooters' rights, uh, to make sure they're out in the media uh, pushing these things. And Robert did an absolutely fantastic job. So this is what Robert had to say uh, about Jason Wood. 
Good stuff. I know uh, you like to hunt big game and you like to head overseas, but what are some of the conservation benefits? We'll go into the uh, Glenn McGrath hunting debacle in just a second. You've been pretty vocal on 2GB and other radio stations across New South Wales and around the States. Um, tell us what are the conservation benefits in hunting in Africa? Well, the conservation, uh, the conservation benefits are very, very um, you know, well documented and they're, they're historical. Um, the one thing, one of the major things that you know, there's been a lot of talk of lately is, uh, you know, with, as you mentioned, the Glenn McGrath issue is, is elephant hunting, and one of the important things with uh, his name popping up and me people having a go at me is that you get a chance to uh, lift the profile of that particular issue and uh, get to explain to people what real conservation is. And real conservation is not uh, shutting things down, closing down, and then rolling over to the abuse both personal and other that I get, for example, and certainly that McGrath has got, but uh, is to ex- explain to people how these programs work. Um, uh, you know, for example, in Zimbabwe or Tanzania or, or in, uh, in um, uh, I can't think of any other places, but nor- uh, southern Rhodesia and northern Rhodesia, the old countries, yep. those countries have had programs where a tolerance has been taught uh, amongst the locals by giving them reward for uh, working with local and international hunters who come in, give them money to participate in their conservation programs. And uh, you got you, if you take a country like Kenya, for example, which banned uh, hunting in 1977, and just pick one species only, and that's elephants because it's a good one. Uh, they had a population in 1977 after um, probably the best part of a hundred years of indiscriminate hunting but still they had a population of over 120,000 elephants they banned all forms of hunting in uh, in Kenya in 1977 today they have less than 20,000 elephants left mm. take the other example uh, of um, uh, Zimbabwe who probably in the same period of time started with about 40 to 45,000 elephants have had a very vigorous well-funded and properly maintained hunting program, even under that despot Mugabe, right? Because the programs do work. I've been accused, you know, I've been accused of putting money into uh, the pockets of uh, these criminals in those countries, and they are criminals. But the reality is, the hunting programs, the national parks programs, etc., work. As difficult as they happen in those countries, they work. They have now not 45,000 elephants. They have nearly 100,000 elephants. And it's got to the point now where in, in Hwangi National Park, for example, those elephants are in plague proportions. And lion numbers have increased in those country, in that country to the point now where they have excellent numbers of huntable lions. And what does the Australian government do? They ban the importation of trophies because they say that those, those lions when hunted in the wild are canned hunts. Yep, okay. No, really, was, uh, a lot of my listeners have expressed <laughs> very different points of view, some really supportive of Glenn McGrath, and, you know, some also shooters are not very happy, Robert, that, you know, they say he sold us down the river, and why didn't he just come out and say, yeah, this is great for conservation? I mean, as you'd know, Glenn, I think, you know, and his wife obviously knew as well, or his um, d- uh, past wife, you know, that he was a big hunter, he loved his hunting. I mean, he's been on the double SAA magazine, and he's expressed a lot of interest in really enjoying um, and wanting to go to Africa to hunt because he enjoyed it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit disappointed too that he actually... I, I've got to say know. I agree with I agree with you and, and yeah. your listeners because uh, 
Um, I don't want to be personally critical of him, but uh, yep. he's, uh, he's running a very big business in the uh, McGrath Foundation. It just looked to me like some spin doctor. You know, the, the basic explanation was, oh, I went mad, Your Honour, because I was depressed and I went and shot yeah. an elephant. Yeah, I mean, that, bit what, silly. What sort of answer is that? No, I mean, that good. is a disgrace. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we know what a keen hunter he is. We know, we know what a good bloke he is. I don't know him personally. Um, uh, I'm, he's a lovely man, I'm sure. Yeah. But to come up with something like that is yeah. a betrayal. And some of the things we heard from the Greens and the Greenies on Twitter, how about, you know, turn the gun on yourself? I mean, what's wrong with these Greenies, Rob? I just I can never understand how they, how they think. They'd rather kill uh, humans than animals. I just, I just don't understand this logic. Well, there's, no, but that's the whole point. There is no logic to it. There is no logic. It's not logical. It's, in a, it's an emotional hate reaction and bigotry. That's what it is. They don't like what you do, so therefore you're not allowed to do it. But mm. There's no reason or rational, rationale to it. I mean, I'm... I'm forever answering uh, people like that on our Facebook page, and yeah. and I get emails. I've just had another another run of emails from uh, elephant uh, elephant hunting haters and lion hunting haters. I mean, I, I mate, I get this stuff all the time, every day of the week. It's really, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to call it anymore. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I've lost count of the number of uh, of, of rubbish that I've, I've received and the personal threats I've had and. You know, they're going to burn my house down and they're going to kill my kids and I'm just getting a break. Silly, isn't it? This is the shit I've got to put up with. Yeah. Recently, I mean... This is a big one. I know this is a federal issue, but obviously this affects us all. Recently, hunters have been under fire from uh, Environment Minister Greg Hunt and MP Jason Wood. I mean, one, what can we stop? How can we stop these falls? Because it seems Mr. Hunt uh, wants to tell me, and I mean, again, my podcast is also about firearms ownership, but it's also about freedom. And I've seen uh, the Shooters and Fishers Party uh, talking about getting freedoms back and uh, talking about that, which is fantastic. So why does Greg Hunt think he can tell me what I can and can't do in other country he also said that he's going to try and talk to those countries and stop people uh from going over and partaking in legal licensed hunts which i think is quite funny he's got no chance in hell but why does he think he can tell me what i can and can't do in another country well mate, he knows he can't uh what this is all about is uh pure exercise pure and simple in playing politics and using uh people like you and me who like to hunt as ass wipes. That's what he's doing. Yeah. Right. That's, that's simply what it is. You you like to hunt. I like to hunt. I'm just a piece of rag that he wipes his ass with. That's what it boils down to. <laughs> okay? Blunt, good. No, because this is that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Right? Then coming from that rubbish, right, uh, what, what he's done is um, you, you have to understand that Jason Wood is a left-wing liberal like him who's in a marginal liberal seat of Latrobe. All right, in mm. outer ring of Melbourne, and he only just got back in, by, or, or got re- elected at the last election by the skin of his teeth. He's only got a three and a half percent majority. Right, Hunt's got over nine percent on his seat, which is a neighbouring seat. Okay, and what he's done is he's doing this to try and help Woods get some creds with the lefties in his electorate. Okay, yeah. with the Greenies and the Animal Liberationists. Mm. That's what it's all about. You know, I've made, I've been, you know. You and a whole lot of other people have come to this uh, recently in the last month or so. Mate, mm. I've been writing to Hunt and fighting that bastard since July last year. Mm. I think I right. sent him a letter too, similar. It was last right. year, definitely some time. I know that much. Mate, I've been, I've been on this case. 
Mm. I, we, I, I put in two FOIs. I mm. found out that the reports he was getting written to support the uh, the decision he had already made to ban it, ban the importation of these uh, trophy animals, right, was bodgy. Mm. Okay, we I, I had uh, I had my offsider Steve Larson go in and research it, and he proved that the CITES records did not conform with the with the report and the figures that he had had prepared. Okay, yeah. it was all bullshit. Yeah, and and it's got nothing to do with good policy. It's got nothing to do with uh, good conservation. It's got nothing to do with any of those things that are logical. What it, this is a pure and simple is a grubby deal to try to help his mate out, right? Mm. And they got and, and Jason Wood is a bumbling fool of a politician. <laughs> have you seen him on YouTube? <laughs> I have. If He's you a haven't, bumbling jump fool. <laughs> I heard I heard him interviewed uh. on Steve Price the other night. Uh, and who elected and, this goose? Who elected this goose? Well, some clowns in 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 the uh, in the, the seat of Latrobe in Victoria. Anyway, look, the upwash, <laughs> the upshot of the whole thing was, regardless of what we did, and you know, I sent I sent uh, Steve down to um, Steve down to Canberra for a couple of days. Ray Hammond, the president of Safari Club, went down there as well. They went and knocked on doors. They saw they saw uh, Lion Home. They saw. Ricky Muir, they saw a bunch of National Party guys who beat their chests, and we're going to go in there and tell Hunt and blah, 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 right? Hunt told them all to piss off and did it anyway, right? <laughs> so, look, you know, what's the upshot of it? Well, then at the end of it, I've written a letter uh, last Thursday to both Mr Hunt and Mr Wood saying, uh, I, I really am disappointed in what you've done, but you have to understand that what we are now going to do as the Shoes and Fishers Party come the next federal election we will campaign against both of you in your seats yep. uh, in the federal election in September 2016 or thereabouts, and we will pass our preferences to Labor. Yep. And we hope that we unseat you. Thank you very much, yours sincerely, Robert Borsak. Good. There's nothing else you can do. Good, yep. You know, I mean, you know, they were asked, he, Hunt was asked, look, if, you're, if you are really concerned about canned hunts, which, which canned hunts are illegal, you know what they're talking about is estate hunting yep. in in South Africa. Yeah. If you're concerned that they are canned hunts, well, why are you? Don't you differentiate between wild taken trophies in other countries, in Tanzania, in uh, Zambia, in Zimbabwe, in Botswana, you know, in uh, in uh, you know in in uh, Mozambique? Why don't you? No, no, no. We can't tell the difference. Bullshit. You can't tell the difference. Yeah. They're all documented separately. They're all documented differently. Right now, that look. In the end of the day, this is just an exercise in, as I said right at the very start, of just treating us as asswats, setting us up to be hated. Right, and uh, keep in mind, we live in the t in the in the Disney world of now the Lion King, mate. That's what it is. <laughs> Bambi and the Lion King. That's what it's all about. And again, the people listening to your podcast, yep. if they don't get off their ass and do something, then nothing will be done. Because what, where they're going for is a complete ban on not only overseas hunting, a complete ban on um, hunting in Australia as well. Absolutely. That's where it's all going. I think I already know about a couple of friends of mine and um, uh, some people emailed me and said they've personally, due to this result, they've personally gone and booked in hunts in Africa. So, I mean, well, they, 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 they banned elephant hunting in uh, 1983. I shot my first elephant in uh, 1990. That doesn't stop me. Yeah. 
yeah. uh, and it's not going to stop me. And, and and even Hunt said that, oh, well, we can't stop you going over there to hunt, but we can stop you bringing these wicked things in. I mean, give me a break, will you? That's oh, no, ridiculous, wicked isn't it? Wicked things. I mean, get it. grow a life. You know, since when should policy be made on the fact that you don't like what someone's doing? If it's ethical, if it's legal, why shouldn't you be able to do it? Yeah. That's the part that I think that upsets a lot of people. Not yeah, sort of what it is, but you know, these people are trying to say, well, you know, we're going to start, go and stop you, and we're going to be contacting other countries. I mean, it's laughable, really. But well, I've actually written. I've re- actually uh, today written to the High Commissioner for South Africa and given them all the documentation. I've written to the Ambassador for Zimbabwe. I've written to Mozambique. I've written to Tanzania. I've written to Zambia, and I've written to uh, what's the other one? One other. One of the other big game hunting. Uh, Southwest Africa, Namibia, yep. I've written there as well. I've informed them all of what this this uh, shocking decision, uh, uh, this disgraceful uh, government has done. And I look forward to campaigning against them politically, and I look forward to a number of your listeners putting their hands up to get on a bus and go to Victoria in yep. 2016 with us and spend a couple of days down there and just do those two bastards over politically. <laughs> that's what they need. Yeah, exactly. Turn up at the, at the front of well, their offices. The, mate, mate, that's what the NRA does. No, that's don't what... turn up at their offices. Turn up at the polling booths yep. and hand out on the day for the Shooters and Fishers Party. That's what the NRA does in the States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They marshal their, their troops and they go down and they attack the member in his electorate at the next polling day mm. and get them thrown out. That's and right. then they publicise it all and say, guess who did it? We did it and we're proud of it. Mm-hmm. That's the way you do it. Well, that is the end of episode 100, the best of AHP. Tried to pick a lot of things from different episodes, such as, you know, earlier on in the podcast to the middle of the podcast and also towards the end of the podcast. I think we've come a long way in professionability, uh, especially in the audio quality than when we first started. Uh, as you know, things evolve. There's plenty more coming up. We've got plenty more politicians coming on the show. We've got many more hunting podcasts coming up. Lots of straight shooting, lots of politics, uh, and lots that in- yeah, interest a lot of different people. If we- if you want hunting, we've got that. If you want politics, we've got that. If you want to hear from everyday hunters, we've got that. If you've got any ideas of any segments that you think we should do, please, I'd love to hear from you at AustralianHuntingPodcast at gmail.com. Even if you think it's silly, please send it to me because we're, we're always thinking of getting new segments. We have the three at the moment, the straight shooting, everyday hunter, and our normal podcast. If you think something could benefit, and you think it'd be great, send us in an email. I'd love to hear from you, and it's something we might implement. I mean, one of the guys off the Facebook, I think it was Clayton, came up with the name Straight Shooting for our Politics Straight Shooting podcast episode. So thanks, Clayton. Uh, If you've got any ideas, please send them to me. As usual, my name is Jason Selms. I'll see you next time. You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.